Hello and welcome. My name's Ben. I'm the CEO of Charlie HR, and this is the Culture Ops Podcast. We're the podcast that's trying to lift the lid on the challenging situations that affect your business and your culture on a daily basis. Let's get into it. Welcome back to another episode of the Culture Ops Podcast. I still believe that the workplace culture revolution that is taking place right now is still in its infancy. We've still got a long way to go before we fully discard the dangerous and counterproductive ideas that we've been telling ourselves about workplace culture. The culture is made better by the coolness of your office, the freeness of your beers, or the wildness of your Christmas parties. There are still many organisations out there who don't view culture as something that they can actively work on, something that can benefit the lives of those that we work with and the bottom line of our businesses at the same time. One of the arguments I see often is that culture isn't really something you can control. It's not something you can actively work on. But I don't believe that. The culture you build is a choice. And so to help me set out the stall for that argument is one of the key generals of this workplace culture revolution, who certainly influenced a lot of my own thinking and to which I'm very grateful that he's joining me today. So I want to introduce today's guest, Bruce Daisley, ex-Twitter VP and best-selling author. Hey, Bruce, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. Nice introduction. I appreciate that. Yeah, no worries. It's... um. It's very true. I'm very, I'm very honoured to have you today. It's going to be a, I kind of do the podcast mostly for myself. I don't know if you find that about yours. Like I just, I enjoy these conversations so much. Precisely. Exactly that. When I started my podcast, I really sort of, I, if there was any component of it, it was nine tenths self-education and then one tenth act of subversion where I thought, you know, if I start something about how to make good workplace culture, then my international colleagues will give some more consideration to it. Because it was, I think it was a relatively tough time at work and and, you know, it, we, you've always got to have everyone aligned in an organization in wanting to make the company better. And I was just convinced that some of the things that I was trying to do, I was running in a big tech firm, uh, but the th- things I wanted to do weren't necessarily aligned to everyone in the different offices. So, you know, there was one part of subversion, but majority of it was just... I realized actually like a little hack, if you read a book and you really enjoy it, especially if it's a business title, if you contact the author, of course, they're going to say they haven't got time to talk to you. But if you say, will you talk to me for a podcast? You'd be astonished how many of them say yes, especially if you go, you know, probably if you contact Malcolm Gladwell, it's not going to be a yes. But if there's anything even slightly geeky or out of the the book charts then they're almost certainly going to say yes so that was that was the little hack that i discovered really and i'm exploiting that very hack exactly that today. live example um using your own tactics against you so um what's uh, what's 2020 been like for you um i know you're in the process of writing uh book book number two has it been has it been a strange year yeah really strange actually so when we went into it i had you know i left I was working as European Vice President for Twitter. I left in January after eight years there. And my feeling was that, you know, I was going to have, I was going to explore um, some climate change projects. And I've been just sort of doing some things related to that. And then in addition, maybe sort of carve out a bit of consultancy work on how people improve their workplace culture. 
And uh, and what I discovered very quickly was when the first lockdown was was ordered in March, uh, I thought, oh, right, okay, well, this changes some of that consultancy plan. Maybe I'll get to writing a book straight away. And what I discovered very quickly was, you know, three or four weeks into that, I thought, right, actually, there's something fundamentally going on, going on with work here, that work isn't going to look in the way that we imagine. I started doing this newsletter, um, which was just actually when I look back at it it was me realizing in real time wow actually we're not going back to the way things were and something fundamental is going to be different here so I think you know it's been the newsletter has been growing strongly because I think pretty much every business is in exactly the same situation everyone's sort of got this gold star for versatility of transferring their business to something a bit more nimble in March and then you know everyone now collectively is almost in an identical boat of trying to work out what can we do to make our companies thrive and succeed in the future. Yeah, for sure. So I want to look at this idea of, of, of choice and, and it's a relatively macro topic, but I think you're such a proponent for healthy cultures, appropriate cultures, thinking about culture as a tool that you can actively work on, actively change and make conscious decisions decisions by about. Do you think that as you look back on your career, do you believe that on the whole leaders are prioritizing working on their cultures correctly? I think a relatively big number of people have a consideration that they want their working environments to be motivated and positive, either because, you know, they've recognised the importance of that as they've been coming through the ranks. But often when we reach a level of responsibility, if you ask someone to choose how much they would give to delivering the results and then how much they would allocate to having a good time at work, people... (coughs) can see these things in opposition to each other. So they can think, well, look, you know, I heard it when I was coming through my career that someone said, you know, now's not the time to be having fun because it was felt like fun was sort of the the luxury you have, the beer you have at the end of a successful week rather than the, you know, the cake you have that motivates you to have a successful week. People see them in opposition to each other. So I think a lot of people have got a consideration that they want their workplaces to be enjoyable, but they sometimes think that it's a trade-off and they are on the side of achieving a, a successful outcome rather than um, rather than having a, a you know a creative and productive workplace. Do you think that's because they don't understand the nuance of what it is to build a culture, or maybe they've been, you know? the media popular culture has told us and and certainly i see that in the kind of tech startup ecosystem that um you know you've inhabited for a long time i continue to in, to inhabit it, it gives us a slightly warped view of what of what culture is yeah and doesn't necessarily focus on the fundamentals yeah and i think you know it's not helped by the fact that the the hardware we're dealing with people uh, are sort of really complicated. I changed phone operating system this week from from one of the big phone operating systems to one of the other ones. And, you know, the first thing you have for the, the week of transition is you're like, well, what button do I press for that? What do I, and it's like this frustration that, you know, two weeks in, you forget all of that frustration. It all feels like you've rewired. People are just frustrating because they don't have that consistency. So you sit down with one person, you try to 
Think about what you can do to understand them, to motivate them, to inspire them. It works one time and it doesn't work the next time. And, and people are just very different form of hardware. And I think that's one of the challenges that, you know, sometimes we, we've probably all empathized with that moment where we think, oh, right, I've asked three times, I'm just going to do it myself. Or, you know, to get this done, the only way to get it done to the standard I want is to do it myself. We've all had those moments, especially if you've been a manager where you've thought, actually doing this myself will be easier. And so people can be uh, a frustrating subject matter, but when you get it right, they can be an incredibly inspiring and, and they can exceed all of your expectations because they bring their own ingenuity and they bring, bring their own inventiveness to a problem. But I think that's one of the, the challenges that anyone's got when they're thinking about culture. The other one is what you mentioned, is that there's so much misdirection. I personally find on social media, I don't like looking at other people's lives. Why? Because comparison leads to unhappiness. I think, you know, it's mm. one of the things that psychology tells us, comparison leads to unhappiness. So I've got some very good friends, but when I see photographs of them on their social media, all sort of sitting around swooning and drinking gorgeous cocktails on a beautiful terrace somewhere, it makes me unhappy to see it. And, you know, to some extent, we have the same with uh, other companies' cultures. Tech firms are those people who just post, you know, incredible vistas on their Instagram all the time. They post things that are hacking your own happiness. So tech firms try and make out that their culture has got all of the answers, big tech firms. Whereas, in fact, the moments of inspiration are where people feel like they were given responsibility to do something. They had a moment where they didn't know if they could do it, then they did it and they exceeded expectations. There's a really interesting lesson, Ben, in, in terms of what we've learned this year. Gallup do this workforce survey and this workforce survey is sort of stuff of legend in, in workplace culture. You know, iconic, one of the figures that you hear is that 13% of British workers are engaged in their job. In fact, when you look into the stats, Twice as many people are disengaged so than are engaged. So, you know, most times when you go into a firm, when, you, when you're exposed to a company, the person you meet is twice as likely to be plotting the downfall of the organization <laughs> as wanting it to succeed. So, you know, workforce engagement is incredibly low. But one of the things we know this year is during the, the, that March, that April period, where everyone was kind of scrambling around, how do I access you know, our network remotely? How do I get those figures that I, how would I use that system that I use remotely? And we had to make everything done. Engagement went up. Mm. That's interesting, right? So when you give someone something that's unpredictable, that's, uh, they haven't got the answers, that requires a degree of inventiveness, that requires their own cognitive input, they get more engaged. And, you know, one of the things that we often do when we're creating cultures is we say, I want you to do this, and we give people a laundry list, rather than say, I want you to solve this problem. And if we tell people what problem they, we want them to solve, they tend to get more motivated and inspired by it. So I think that's an interesting lesson about this, you know, this COVID, this lockdown we've been through. We've actually seen a big opportunity to improve people's motivation by giving them our, the problems we've, we've got to solve. And I think that's an interesting lesson. As anyone's thinking, how can we make our culture better? Probably you know, making teams smaller, meeting smaller, giving more individual responsibility to people, but giving accountability to them seems to be an important ingredient. Yeah. And I think, you know, just listening to, I mean, there's, there's probably like 10 or 15 
points in there that I could I could spin out and we could turn into into a blog post. So lots of lots of real gold dust. Um, but one of the threads that ran through what you were talking about is is you know you you called it being nimble as a business up at the front of the show, and then you referred to this agility, and you also referred to uh, creating. Um, creating opportunities, creating an experience for an individual employee that is unique to them. And I think that is one of the key things uh, when I think about defining culture is that what different groups of people need is completely different. And so that's why that that comparison perspective that you talk about uh, is so fundamentally broken and fundamentally wrong is because one group of people working at one organization, what they need uh, to feel engaged and empowered is very different to to another group. And so, you know, I kind of implore organizations to use some of that business nimbleness that we've all seemed to have learned this year and start applying that to how they think about their culture, being more agile, being more nimble, adapting and changing their policies and their processes so that they're constantly getting the best out of their people, not this is what we're going to do and that's kind of end of discussion. Yeah. Yeah. Look, you know, and having those discussions is the first step to to making those improvements, I think. Um, you know, you, anyone that looks at your CV, um, they'll see some pretty impressive names in there, um, you know, and, you know, high profile organisations doesn't always mean necessarily the best organisations. It's one type of organisation, right? Uh, and you, you've certainly learned a lot from, uh, you know, your time in, in those businesses. Have you seen examples of cultural endeavours that were misinformed, weren't quite thought through, were more of a band-aid than an actual solution? Yeah, I mean, quite often, the the bigger the separation between the people who are the beneficiaries to um, the people that are making the decisions, the more that these things go astray. I saw this week, one of my former employers, Google, announced two things, cultural uh, responses. One which was they, they gave two days extra holiday to everyone, two days extra vacation to everyone. Um, and that was, I think, because there's a, there's a growing recognition that this year has been tough. We've spent a lot of time on screens and people are just frazzled. They're just exhausted by more and more time on screens. Uh, the second one was they created this meeting-free week. <laughs> and the meeting-free week was the 28th, of December to the 1st of January. Now, anyone who's having meetings that week, unless they're creating the, the COVID vaccine delivery plan, is psychopathic. No one yeah. should be having meetings that week. Come on. There's a natural yin-yang to the way that our work flows. We can't be on all the time, but to, you know, there shouldn't be meetings that week. And anyone who was close to the coalface would understand that. But I, th- I think some of these things are, some organisations are too big. You know, if, if I was sort of running a big organisation like that, the more that you can make it seem like a series of villages, the more you can make it seem like there are different decisions, the better. Really intriguing uh, American steel company that I uh, became fascinated by called Nucor. And it's, it, you know, the, the name is, it, it came from nuclear power and then, then became a steel mill. And effectively, it, um, it was really intriguing. It was a, the most profitable uh, steel company in the US. Uh, and what they allowed under their chief exec, there's a really nice blog post on this, if anyone's interested, on the, the, um, the Farnham Street 
blog, which uh, is sort of a behavioral economics blog. But if you search Nucor, uh, Farnham Street, you'll find it. But um, what they did is they gave everyone running one of their steel mills the authority to create everything themselves, to hire their own HR people, their own marketing people, their own accounts people, uh, the, everything. And effectively, their head office had about 13 people in it. Their head office effectively just ran the sort of the overall company uh, accounts. It was the most profitable. Why? Because everyone could see precisely what their job was doing in the organization. And what they often realized is that when we create big company-wide HR functions or company-wide, you know, sort of responsibilities, what you end up doing is half of the task of those, those teams is reporting the decisions to everyone else. And the decisions are being made so far away from everyone that effectively there's no benefit to them. So look, you know, I know this, one of the, the, the things that we're meant to celebrate is the benefits of scale. But to some extent, with, when it comes to people, there's not always as, as many benefits. So I think, you know, that's intriguing for me. Keeping things small seems to have plenty of ben- benefits over keeping things big. Yeah, and allowing the person closest to a group mm. of people, be that a manager or a leader or a team leader, whatever, to be able to make those decisions that are relevant and appropriate. I mean, I look, I guess if I was cynical and I looked at that Google example, I would say they're trying to take something that, you know, they're trying to take a piece of time, but they know people are probably not going to be at their maximum performance. And we're going to try and wrap it up in a bow and give it to everyone to make it look like we've done something that's in their in their interest. But really, really that was an easy thing, really that was an easy thing to give. Do you think that, you know, the, the, the key thing that stops organizations, leaders giving, investing in their people and their culture is because they're worried about the bottom line, they're worried about performance, you know, because for sure there are going to be other organizations, you know, um, I know I have friends that are management consultants who I know are going to be doing some work in that week. Um, you know, what's stopping those organizations say, you know what? Yeah, we've had a hard year. No one's working that week. You've got the time off. Is it bottom line, money, performance? Yeah. I mean, I suspect if you wanted to make it more effective, no doubt there are going to be teams in their organization who need to work that week. And, you know, the idea that you're going to make a company-wide policy is probably the mistake. Whereas if you just said to managers, you know what, here's what we're going to do is we're going to allow local managers to make these decisions and you know and so it might be just by a country basis the the manager in france says we're having two weeks without meetings the the manager in in the uk or in spain or whatever does exactly the same so but just giving a bit more local autonomy so people feel like they've got the the opportunity to to do things i guess have you seen when that maybe localized or team specific approach backfires you know, is there, I guess, is there a worry that we start to create um, this idea that this team gets to do this and we don't get to do this? You know, how do you protect against against that that challenge, that comparison yeah. within a team by team level? It's effectively when you've created a political bureaucracy, right? Yeah. When you've when you've created a political bureaucracy, those things start to to come and impact you. Um, and it's generally when people believe that their own personal well being is somehow being compromised by other people be, 
being given benefits. It's like back to comparison leads to unhappiness. Um, and, you know, generally, I, I chatted to one author this year, a guy called Gary Hamill on my podcast. Yeah. And his, his belief is that a third of big business is bureaucracy that effectively you could get rid of a third of the people in big business and it would have zero impact. And I, I think, you know, a lot of the time we've created these systems, these incentives, the way that the, the business is constructed to some extent to reflect those things. You know, we've, we've created political bureaucracies. So look, you know, I hear you on, on the realities of those things, but they're normally a reflection that something wider has gone wrong. That, you know, people don't necessarily feel that they're interested in being served and doing their job really well, but rather, you know, they're playing a game and someone is, is taking an extra turn or someone is, is not abiding by the rules. Is that, is that an organisation that, I guess, lacks trust in, in leadership and in leaders and, and between, between teams? Is, is trust the thing we need to build there to avoid that political bureaucracy? Yeah. And, and look, you know, I think it's because people in those organisations, big organisations think I'm part of an ecosystem. There's rules about my own personal development and, and well-being. And if the rules aren't evenly applied, then I suffer. You know, one of the things I, was, I discovered when I joined big corporate companies uh, is they, they often have promotion systems where promotion isn't based on there's a gap to fill and we're going to promote you into it, but rather more uh, you are level, you know, I think in Microsoft, they start at 57. You are level 57, um, just because it's a nominal and meaningless number. You're 57. The person above you is 58. person above you is 59. What I discovered when I joined one of those big firms is that there were rules that were limiting me. So no matter how much I worked in my first year and like no matter how much I strived, I couldn't get promoted for two years. And so what happens in that situation, you think, well, is this then like training for the Olympics? Should I then just peak at the right moment? And what happens is you hire all of these incredible talented people in and you tell them, just so you know, you can only develop at this speed. So, you know, don't do anything. And rather than, so rather than people feeling like they're on the round the world race and, you know, they can discover and do something quicker and develop quicker and, and unleash all this entrepreneurial talent, big business is effectively saying, you, we've hired you because you've got all this talent, but can you just use it in this very linear way? And it just astonished me. It astonished me that, you know, you would, um, I would work with people who, had so much excitement, ambition, full of ideas, and it was gradually sort of throttled out of them. It was, it was their impact was reduced because the systems they were operating in were, um, were, you know, controlled insanity. Really, it just it was a strange way to operate, and effectively, people became adept at operate at working within this weird system. Now. So back to what we we're talking about before, if managers are only told that they can do this and this and this and this, then they're, they're not really managers, are they? They're just implementers. Yeah. And when managers have got no autonomy, I think when any of us feel like we've got no control, we gradually lose our engagement. We gradually lose any sense of, of fulfillment from our jobs. What you, I, I've been really intrigued this year. The thing I'm writing about is about resilience. And one of the things you discover is that, you know, resilience is a really interesting word, really. And we've heard a lot of it this year. People talk about, 
you know, young people need to be more resilient. You know, they're not as resilient as they used to be. Why can't they be more resilient? Resilient is always what someone else needs to be rather than ourselves. You know, mm. we're, we're very willing to, to say about someone else, but it's time they're a bit more resilient. I've always thought it's, um, it's similar to calming down. Uh, if you've ever been stressed and maybe you've not been showing your best version of yourself to the world and you get, get anxious, and then someone, normally someone close to you says, calm down. And uh, never really works. The, no. the, the, I, I saw something last week which was never in the history of calming down has someone calmed down when they've been asked to calm down. Yeah, and that's my feeling true. about resilience. No one, no one in the history of resilience has ever been more resilient by being told to be resilient. You know, it just doesn't happen. Um, but what you discover about resilience is that we generally are more resilient when we feel a sense of control of, mm. over our circumstance. You know, if you know you can do something, then you can draw you can you can uh, draw upon extra reserves of energy when we feel connected to other people. So generally, people are not resilient when they're the lone person trying to deal with something on their own. But more, they know they've got a support group or they've got someone to go back and cry about their problems to. When we feel connected to other people, when we feel like we've got control, when we're conscious and knowledgeable about our own strengths, our own identity, these things are really critical. So resilience is like this collective thing rather than this individual thing. And, you know, I've become really intrigued with that. And I guess managers, leaders, CEOs, whoever, they have a choice as to whether they empower people in their organization to, ha to have that control, right? They can, they can keep that control. They can, they can, they can hold on to it or they can give people more autonomy, give people more ability to make their own decisions and craft the experience that they have at work. Absolutely. You know, unequivocally, there's a strange thing about burnout, for example, these, uh, some academic research looking at nurses. And, you know, I think this year, everyone is very vividly aware that the medical staff around the world, you know, but have gone over and beyond. But there's an intriguing thing about burnout that some medical staff show more burnout than others. And so they wanted to understand why. And the ones who were showing more burnout were the ones who felt like they were being asked to do more hours, but they weren't choosing to. And there's mm. a strange thing when someone says, if they say to nurses, to doctors, are you willing to do another shift? If they choose to do another shift, their burnout is measurably lower than if they're told they have to do it. It's a strange thing. When we feel like I wanted to do that, it seems to unleash this capability, this potency that we feel we can carry on. I think a lot of us recognize that, you know, like if you've got your, your own business and you, you're working hard, if you feel like, you know, well, I want to work tonight, it has a materially different impact on the way that we experience that than when, you know, your boss might tell you it's Christmas, you need to do a double shift at the weekend. So mm. that sense of control, that sense of personal autonomy seems to be a really big component of how we experience things and how we deal with them. And it goes, it, like, it seems to run all through everything you discover. It's a weird thing where the, the whole of, when you sort of delve into psychology, there's a whole load of research as a lifelong vegetarian who's very much against uh, animal experiments. You read all of these vivid and horrible things, but one of the things they do is they, they take rats and they immobilize these rats. So the way you immobilize rats, of course, is you inject them with Botox, the whole body freezes up. And they put then put these rats in water. So, so far, so like sore, it's like a horror, a rodent horror movie. 
But what they do horrendous. is, right? But then half of them, they give them a little piece of wood to chew on, and the rest of them they just leave in the water. The ones who feel like they can do something, their stress levels are three quarters lower. So, like you know, a quarter of the level of those who can't. Giving people even just some some slight sense that they've got agency in a situation has a massive impact. And shout out to all the rats out there, because I'm sorry that they have to go through that for us to learn the lesson. For our learning, yeah, no, no doubt. Do you do you look back at your time at, at Twitter and Google and, and, and other places and you know see an image of yourself as a manager, as a leader, and are you confident that you made the right choices in how you exhibit the things that you're now very passionate about? So, you know, autonomy, is that something that you gave to the people that you work with, the, te- the teams that you interacted with? Do you think you mirrored that that behaviour? Um, generally, my, my team at YouTube, so I was at Google, I was setting up sort of YouTube, and my team at YouTube was regarded as a very different team to um to like the the run of the the order of things so the the way it works at google is that you're given a headcount allocation rather than a budget so what that means is that a lot of people when they're told they're going to go and hire a person they go and hire a really 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 senior person uh and so what you've got at google you've got loads of really senior people and no one doing the work you know everyone a lot of senior people used to be consultants and i hired a whole bunch of kids like the most enthusiastic people you've ever met, a diverse bunch of, of kids to come and do the work. And what you found was that there was just, it changed the energy in the team. It, you know, it was sort of, it became, um, no one wanted the credit for anything. You know, that old adage is, it's amazing what you can get done if no one cares who, who takes credit. And mm. there was a lot of that. So, you know, there's a lot of other things. When I set up Twitter, what I realized is we had really small global organization when, when I uh, set it up in the UK. And what I really realized was is that, you know, when you've got a new organization, people are full of ambition and they don't want to get into trouble. You know, like human instinct. And so the rule became, I didn't know any of the science that I've subsequently learned that makes me understand this. The rule became blame Bruce. So if anyone anywhere said, what are you doing? Who gave you permission to do this? The rule was always blame Bruce. Now, uh, and so what happened was, you know, very rarely did it get to any level of severity. Uh, But always I'd say to the person concerned, well, look, you know, so talk me through your thought process. And I think they felt, well, this gives me like this get out of jail free card. But they understood that it was this thing where, you know, if they'd done something terrible and they blamed me, they knew that there was like this understanding between us. Now, look, you know, that's probably, if you wanted to give that a word, that's psychological safety. That's like the absence of blame. I had no idea that such a term existed. I had no idea that uh, such a thing was there, but it was like this, I think, this accidental thing. Along the way, though, when the culture definitely took a turn for the worse and things were less effective, I think, you know, the interesting thing for me was to understand, so what did go wrong? And I think what happened was later on, as maybe the business was having more challenges, was getting into more difficulties, I thought it's my job to be the cheerleader. It's my job to go out and be, you know, okay, everyone's reading news stories about how 
the, uh, the, the roof's going to cave in and how the company's going to collapse. My job's to go out there and say, no, it won't. And of course, what happens with mm. that is that, you know, every, it's, it's often nice to have someone on a car journey who's like the enthusiast, who keeps the morale up. But when things are bad, it's probably a better thing to be candid and share that things are bad. And, and I think, you know, so there's a number of things that are definitely accidentally did well. There's a number of things that are definitely did badly. Um, and it was intriguing for me, sort of makes my learning experience of doing my own podcast and, and you know, writing my book has helped me sort of explore and understand the, the different components of that, I think. Yeah, so interesting because there's, you know, the way that you tell it is in, a, in an amazingly endearing and lighthearted way, but these are actually like really amazingly profound choices that you made, you know, very naturally without actually realizing that they were choices that you were making, which would have empowered and enabled your team and your teams in such a, in such a positive way. If tomorrow Facebook call up and they say, we want you to come and uh, run a massive part of the organization or set up a new office. What are the three or four cultural choices that uh, you would make going into a new organization? Yeah, I think the, the closer that people can feel that their culture is defined to, the closer the culture is defined to the team, the more it feels authentic. So, you know, in a huge organization, if you've got 100,000 people, you can have norms, you can have values that, you know, are consistent across that. You can have, the way we do things here is this, you know, give give people the benefit of that. You can have those things, trust good intentions, you know, you can have those things. But I think there's no shame in saying that the culture that one team that's a new business team has can be very different to the team that's in the same organization that's testing the safety of vaccines, right? You know, you, you need different things. You need, yeah. you know, one can be fast and agile and about sort of seizing the day. The other one has got to be, you know, discipline rules. And so there's no shame in saying, your culture, to some extent, reflects the tasks that people are doing. So quite often, you can have in the same organization, you can have different cultures. And I think one mm -hmm. of the mistakes we sometimes make is thinking, ah, okay, well, we just need to make all of this the same. You know, all of us have worked, I remember, um, you know, in certain organizations, and you go onto a different floor and people would say, oh, this is the creative team. They're a bit like this. Fantastic. <laughs> They let them be a bit like that. Let them be, you know, let them celebrate that they are a bit like that. But yeah. the mistake we sometimes make is think, that's great. Oh, it's a shame they've got their own values. It's a shame they've got their own way of decorating. Is there any way we can make it a bit consistent? Actually, what we're going to do is we're going to ask them to take the images down off their wall and we're going to have the company images up there. Worst thing you can do. Because immediately they think, ah, oh, we used to be kind of special and now we're just part of the system. So I think, you know, those things that sometimes we worry that when there's not consistency, lack of consistency is weakness rather than, okay, you know, you've got to try and understand these things, but lack of consistency isn't weakness. You often get it in really big organizations. Someone told me that um, Oracle, the, the big software firm has banned 
Uh, they're not alone in banning hugging. Google has banned hugging as well. But they've banned people friending each other on social networks. Why? Well, basically, at some point, someone will have looked at someone else's social media, made a comment about someone's personal life, and the lawyers come in and they say, if we ban it, then if someone does that, the risk isn't on us. And as soon as lawyers are making the decisions for your company, mm. then you know, you've know you conceded that the culture is less important than the IP, really. You don't believe that culture is going to help you. So um, celebrate the the differences rather than trying to force everyone to be the same? I think so, yeah. I think, you know, we, all, we can all recognise that what you might need in a procurement team is a pride in saving money, in like getting a great deal, in sort of looking after the business. If you've got this zingy, madcap creative team, they've got, they're going to have different values because they're doing a completely different job. Yeah, I agree. So if you're listening to this and you're thinking about your organization and and you came into it and you're a bit stressed and you were like, ah, oh, you know, we've got this group of software developers who, be, who behave like this. And then we've got an accounts team that behave like this and it doesn't all feel joined up. What Bruce is saying is that maybe, just maybe, uh, that's a good thing. And you want to celebrate that and lean into it rather than leaning away. Um, and on that, uh, we're going to wrap up uh, this week's uh, episode. Um, I've got to say a huge thank you to Bruce. Bruce, thanks so much for spending time with us today. No worries. My pleasure. If people want to read more of your thoughts, check in with more of your thinking, where is the best place for them to go? The easiest way is if you go to my website, which is eatsleepworkrepeat.com, I do a weekly newsletter. And, you know, so th- this year I've been sort of helping navigate, helping firms navigate what on earth work is going to look like in 2021. I mean, finding out whatever answers we can we can find on that and just really sort of trying to find a way to make work culture more enjoyable. Yeah, I can highly recommend the podcast and newsletter. I can also recommend the book, The Draw of Work. Um, I actually have both copies of, of the book. I have the UK version and the American version, both sitting on my bookshelf behind me. Um, thank you, Bruce. We really appreciate you coming on the show today and, and lending us uh, your great thoughts and your time. Um, and as ever, I've got to thank uh, Mel, our producer behind the virtual glass, keeping the show on the road. To all of you listening along, wherever you are, we really, really appreciate you. Um, remember, if you've got an issue you'd like us to discuss, please drop us a line. I'm at Gately on Twitter and we are at Join Charlie. We look forward to seeing you again next week. I've been Ben Branson, your host, and this has been the Culture Ops Podcast. Mm-hmm.